This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This episode is brought to you by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 3100 Digital Autopilot provides increased safety, decreased pilot workload, and is approved for over 200 makes and models. To learn more about the STEC 3100, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. That's genesis-aerosystems.com. So the front of the airplane started to shudder and the propeller stopped dead center in the middle of the windshield. And I said, okay, we definitely lost engine. Welcome to another edition of There I Was, a podcast where we put you in the cockpit with pilots in interesting situations and we learn how they flew out of them. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. In today's episode, we have an exciting adventure with Ed Regensburg. Ed's a 25-year general aviation pilot with over 3,300 hours. He's IFR certified. He's flown Cirruses for about 15 years, but before that, he's got time in a 210, a 172, an RB6, among other airplanes. We also have today Lieutenant Jillian Harner from the United States Coast Guard. Jillian went through naval pilot training. She's got over 1,700 hours. She's out of the U.S. Coast Guard station in Miami and flies an HC-144. So welcome, Jillian Ed, to the There I Was podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So, uh, Ed, let's start with uh, with your story and this whole day and how it began. So can you share with us a little bit, um, how did the day begin for you? Where were you? And, and set the stage for us, if you would. Well, we, my friend Dan Tucker, who's also a pilot, and myself, we were, we had already, we had flown to St. Croix, uh, U.S. Virgin Islands, to go diving and we had dove the island for about three or four days and the morning of march 5th we got up seven o'clock in the morning you know reviewed weather and necessary stuff it was a beautiful day um estimated we were probably going to fly for about two and a half hours do a fuel stop and then continue on from there so got to the airport you know it was a pretty day pre-flighted the plane uh, checked everything, loaded up our luggage, said goodbye to our friends, and that's how our day took off. We took off from there, and that was our that was our morning. Okay, sounds like just a great uh, morning, adventurous morning for uh, general that general aviation provides. Being able to take your airplane and fly to interesting places with friends and and do and and have some exciting times. So, about what time did you take off? We were at the airport around 7.30. We probably went wheels up about 8.30 that morning. Okay, great. And so meanwhile, uh, Jillian, while Ed's packing up all his scuba diving gear and uh, saying goodbye to his friends there and and loading up the airplane, what was going on with you at about this same time? 
Uh, yep. So we had been uh, down there for a roughly two-week patrol. Um, our air station augments the helicopter air station down there with some fixed-wing backups. Uh, we mostly do law enforcement while we're down there, but we also help with SAR and uh, other things that they need us to do. So we were getting ready to come back from being down there for two weeks, and um, we loaded up the plane. Uh, they had a bunch of stuff they wanted us to take back, tools, parts for uh, the planes that we bring back and forth, um, just some extra cargo and our luggage as well. So uh, we had the plane all loaded up, and we took off ready to go home and enjoy our uh, couple days of time off. So um we we took off around 9 30 i believe 9 30 or 10 as well so we were right behind them okay and and you were departing out of the same airport out of Barinkin in puerto rico okay so you're departing out of puerto rico and ed meanwhile i'm sorry where were you departing out of uh we were departing out of st croix international i guess yeah okay eisx okay all right, very good. And so, uh, Jillian, uh, for our listeners, SAR means search and rescue. So you were down there on a on a couple weeks supporting the Puerto Rican uh, detachment down there, doing some search and rescue work and some other stuff uh, supporting that unit. But for today's mission, you really just thought you were just on sort of a milk run back home, carrying parts and equipment, really weren't expecting to be involved in a SAR effort. Is that right? That's correct. We were actually uh, on an IFR flight plan and set up for, uh, you know, we had our, our luggage on the back cargo ramps. Um, usually we're, you know, for the ready in the airplane for that day, or if uh, we're on a normal flight, we have everything set up from our, our pump, our raft, uh, radio can, everything's ready to go just to push right out. But that particular day we had kind of a lot of stuff on the ramps and, um, weren't particularly in the star configuration at the time. Yeah, great. Okay. So Ed launches at about uh, 8.30, 9 o'clock, somewhere in there. And Ed, can we pick it back up with you? Uh, talk to us through um, your your departure and climb out and cruise and so forth. Uh, we departed out of St. Croix. It was a little bit of low-hanging clouds. We were on an IFR flight plan as well. I always file IFR. It's safer, even perfectly blue skies. I feel more comfortable and have for many years. So we climbed out, flew over Puerto Rico, and then turned on course. Our stop scheduled for Provinciales in Turks and Caicos for fuel. And we were about two hours into the flight and about 30 miles from Provinciales or Grand Turk Island actually is what uh, Miami told us when we got a yellow warning light on the dash came on for low oil pressure. And so at that point, um, I immediately let ATC know that we had a low oil pressure light came on and they asked me if I wanted to declare emergency. I said, not at this time. I'm going to check every so often you get a bad sensor or something. And so I was checking analog gauges and cross-checking it against the uh, MFD and observed the fuel pressure continuing to drop. Mm. And and what altitude were you at, Ed, for cruising altitude? We were cruising at 8,000 feet. At 8,000 feet. And you'd been airborne for um, about an hour and a half at this point. Is that about right? About an hour and a half to two hours, yeah. Okay, okay, very good. Um, and so now you're, by this time, uh, Jillian, meanwhile, you have launched in your 
uh, HC-144, just expecting uh, a typical cruise flight home. So you guys climbed up and leveled off at, at what altitude? Yep, we went up to uh, about 16,000. It was the best for our winds and uh, getting back. So um, we were about an hour in when we switched over to Miami Center from San Juan Center. Okay. And um, right as we, right as I switched over frequencies, um, I heard them uh, saying they were having engine issues. So we listened for a little bit, waited for them to finish up talking to center, and then we checked in. Um, and then soon after that, we heard them declare the emergency. Okay. Very interesting. So you're up cruising, you check in with Miami Center, and then on the same frequency, you happen to hear Ed declare his emergency, which... And it sounds like now it has transitioned from what you thought was, mm, okay, every now and then you get a false indication, crossing your fingers, hoping that's the case. Turns out it's really not the case. So you're at 8,000 feet. You now have a serious issue, which you know is going to be an engine problem. Jillian, you're cruising at 16,000 feet, listening in and hearing all this happen. Ed, can we pick it up back with you? What, what went on from there in your cockpit? Uh, as I continue to cross-reference gauges um normal air oil pressure is usually in the you know upper 30s uh it dropped down when it got to about 16 psi it went to a red light cable on and at that point i declared and i told uh, danny that we're likely gonna have to ditch the aircraft and we were going to deploy the parachute which cirrus is equipped with and we immediately instructed him to put on a life jacket. And at that point, the oil pressure was at zero. Hmm. So now you know this engine is going to stop. It's not an indicator problem. Oil pressure uh, indicator is fine. It goes to zero now. It's only a matter of time before that engine stops. Are you at this point, pitching to best glide, are you turning towards the nearest land, which I think you said was um, the Grand Turk Island? Um, what, what steps are you going through there before the engine shuts down? At, at that point, I had tried, you know, different power settings and so on to see if I could make anything happen. Uh, you know, instead flipped on, you know, afterwards you think and wouldn't have made a difference, you know, turned on fuel pressure, uh, the fuel pump switch, uh, realized we did, the engine was going to stop. Um, I had declared at that point, the tack on the airplane went to like four to 6,000 RPM. But I looked at Danny and I said, from the sounds of it, it's not over revving. I don't understand. Maybe I've got a bigger issue and maybe it's still something to do with the sensors or the electronics. Hmm. About that time, I felt a vibration, and I says, now that's not normal. And so the front of the airplane started to shudder, and the propeller stopped <laughs> dead center in the middle of the windshield. And hmm. I said, okay, we definitely lost engine. Yeah, yeah. I've heard that same description before from people where it, where it initiates from a loss of, of oil pressure that it suddenly just seizes, and, uh, and there you are. Things get very quiet very quickly. And so from that point, uh, what happened? At that point, I established best glide speed. Uh, Danny was putting on his life jacket. 
as quickly as he could. He, uh, when he had his life jacket on with him being a pilot, I told him, you know, keep me at 85 knots and I'm going to put mine on. So I reached back and put my life jacket on, threw my flight back off of the raft that was in the back seat behind his seat so that it was readily accessible for us when we were in the water. Um, I asked him to count down uh, altitudes as we were going, getting lower, and I told ATC that we were going to deploy at about 2,000 to 3,000 feet. Um, I ended up, when he got to about 2,000 feet, at that point I says we're going to deploy, and I told him to, you know, brace forward, and I let ATC know we were deploying the parachute. And so you communicated that over over the radio, and Jillian, I'm imagining your ears have peaked now. You heard him declare an emergency. Maybe you've heard a couple other calls, but now you hear that he's going to deploy the parachute. What is going on in your airplane at this time? Yep, so we overhear that they're going to declare an emergency, and then we hear that their uh, engine went out. Um, we heard the controller giving them, you know, distances to the nearest airfield. And I remember, Ed, you saying, I'm not holding my breath for that. So we, we knew it was definitely, um, it was definitely a uh, dire situation. And we, we plotted the, so right when we heard the position, the first position that was called out, we put that in our, our computer and our iPads and saw the distance and um, could see we were, you know, they were right on our flight path and we could be there in about 45 minutes. Uh, so ATC gave us some um, back or gave us, you know, clearance to descend and help out. And um, we made best speed to that position, got there, I think in about 40 minutes. So while we were in route, um, we had our air crewmen in the back reassembling everything and moving stuff around and getting things ready to drop a raft. Um, then we had our mission system operators on the radios. One of them was over channel 16, putting out a pon-pon call. Um, for anyone who doesn't really know what that is, it's, uh, it's an urgent broadcast over channel 16 asking for any available mariners to help out in a specific position and the nature of the distress. So one of them was putting that out. Uh, the other one was contacting our District 7 office and our local Coast Guard assets to see who could respond the quickest. And Vanessa, up in the front, we were calculating speeds and uh, talking to ATC as well and um, just trying to make sure everything was, you know, we could be rendering the best assistance there was possible. Um, you know, we're really comfortable in the, the SAR environment, but there's nothing quite like a fellow aviator going down or searching for some you know, fellow aviator in the water just because we all know what a risky job it is to, to be flying itself. So. Um, we were, we were, you know, our ears were definitely perked. We were very invested in the situation because we heard the whole thing transpire. Um, so we made best speed to that area, and and yeah, that that's what, kind of what was going on on our way there. And you have their, you know, generally their position because you've heard um, ATC giving them uh, point outs to the nearest land or the nearest airport, right? So you're you're basically doing reverse math to get. Uh, bearing in distance to their position? Is that what you're using? Or is ATC actually giving you vectors to where they are? We just plugged in uh, the last position that they gave us into our FMS. 
and uh, it, it kind of pops up a, a time for you automatically. And we're also um, putting it in our iPad as well to just make sure we have a you know, double backup. So uh, that's usually the quickest way for us to figure out how quickly we can get there. Got it. Okay. And so uh, at this point, had you guys had any communication between you, Ed, you, and Jillian over the frequency? So, Ed, did you know there was help en route in terms of uh, SAR effort or no? I did. I was well. I didn't actually communicate with Jillian at the time, but I did hear, and it certainly makes us feel better knowing. Yeah, Sorry. I can imagine. Yeah, I can imagine that is a comforting feeling uh, to to be have that situation happen, and you know you're going to be in the water, but you hear that somebody knows you're there. They know your position, and you're headed. The, your way that that must have been a real comfort to you and the in the co-pilot in this stressful situation yes yeah. no, you know that talking to atc is is one thing knowing that there's actually a coast guard aircraft already heading our way before we've actually hit the water um was mu- a much greater comfort yeah yeah and that's kind of one of the things i i wasn't too sure about because you know i know you guys are Going, running through checklists, preparing to ditch, you know, going through a, a bunch of things that I didn't really want to intrude too much on that. I was kind of letting ATC handle that side of it. So, um, you know, in my head, I was like, do I ask for more information about this? Or let ATC handle it? <laughs> I, so I kind of just <laughs> let, let them go with it. Yeah, yeah. It, it, what's so impressive, Jillian, is that you and your crew are just expecting, uh, you know, a standard pretty much uh, milk run, IFR, you know, on a flight plan up at cruise, just headed home from a two-week deployment. And suddenly your ears perk up. You hear this pilot in distress. You know you have the assets to help. And it sounds like your team just immediately goes into action, pulling out stuff for the back, you know, getting the bearing and distance and making your way towards them while you're getting the crew activities going that's really that's really impressive. Make, makes us all proud of the work you guys do in the Coast Guard. And I yeah, do appreciate you, so you not, not throwing luggage to us either. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ed, let's pick it back up. So, uh, so here you are. You're having your uh, right seater, who's a pilot, count down altitudes. You're headed as best you can towards the nearest land mass or airport, but you know you're not going to reach it. Um, can you pick us up from there and talk us through what it was like to pull the chute and the feeling of it and the splashdown and all that? Yeah. Um, well, we, when we did talk to ATC, they did say uh, Grand Turk Island was the closest uh, land. Um, we were 30 miles away when they told us that. Uh, when the airplane, you know, the engine came to a stop, we glided approximately six to seven miles. Um, when we pulled the chute at 1,500 feet, and when the chute deployed, it shoots out the back of the airplane behind the luggage compartment. And so the nose of the airplane pitches sharply downwards. So you're, you're, the whole cabin aims down towards the water. And then looking out through the window, you see these two straps appear, uh, one on either side of of the front where the engine is. And the parachute catches at that point. And if anybody's ever gone bungee jumping or even jumping, you know, with a parachute, it's a whole lot different when you're going about a hundred miles an hour, 80, 85 knots to a zero 
Um, so it was quite the jolt. And at that point, the airplane pulls level again. And so we're now under parachute, uh, 1,500 feet in descending. It seemed like literally three seconds. I don't know how long it took. But uh, at that point, I unlatched the door on my side of the aircraft. And a few seconds later, we hit the water. And my door actually flew off the airplane from the impact and Danny's trying to open his door, and it won't open, and it was jammed, I guess. And afterwards, I thought to myself, um, well, I'm going to throw the raft out my side. You're welcome to swim around if you want to get out <laughs> yours. <laughs> so um did get splashed. At that point, there's a little bit of waves. I believe somebody said that, you know, wave condition was probably, you know, six to eight, ten-foot swells. And so I reached in the back and grabbed the uh, raft, and I threw it out on the wing on the on my side. And you know, for our listeners that aren't familiar with a six to eight, maybe ten foot swells, those are some large waves. You know, that yeah. that's ten feet from trough to the top of the wave, mm-hmm. and um, man, that that's one can be pretty disorienting because that means you can't see around when you're at the bottom of the trough of a wave, and uh, and and things now are jostling, I would imagine, pretty pretty yeah. aggressively as you're trying to get out of the airplane, throw the raft out, keep the raft in control so you can still swim to it, right? Is that part of what's going on here? Actually, and that was part of the reason, because of the waves, that when I did find, I fumbled around trying to find the flap to open it, to grab the handle, to actually inflate the raft, when the raft actually popped open right at the same time that it did that, we got hit by a wave, and the raft actually flipped off the wing and upside down. So I actually jumped into the water at that point because not knowing what uh, – diving is one thing, but swimming, swimming is another. And I didn't know what Danny's background in swimming. I had 20 years of competitive swimming. So I jumped in the ocean, grabbed the raft, and righted it and got him out of the airplane and told him to get in the raft first. And once he got in the raft, I said, lean on the, go all the way to the backside of it. And then I got on the raft. Hmm. Were, was the plane sinking at a fast rate or, or were you worried about that at all? How fast, how long did it take for the plane sunk? Uh, actually, I didn't even think about that, but the plane actually floated for at least 15 to 20 minutes. Wow. And the entire time that it was floating, the parachute was fully inflated because of the winds. Mm -hmm. And so uh, after about 15, 20 minutes, we're probably 20 yards or so floated away from the airplane and the engine compartment fills fills up first. And so the airplane tail goes up in the air. And I took Danny's phone was still working. Mine wasn't. I said to Danny, I said, hey, quick, take a picture of the airplane. (laughs) So he's got this great picture with a tail up in the air. You can see the the, the 345 Delta mic on it and the parachute directly behind it, fully inflated. Wow. And so that is currently my Facebook profile picture. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, Ed, one question. Um, You said that when you got the raft out of the airplane, 
um, it blew away on a wave. Was the raft tethered to the airplane in any way? Were you worried about it literally blowing away so you couldn't reach it? Or how did you keep control of that in those winds and those waves? Well, and, you know, they tell you, and it is the truth, that you're going to microanalyze everything once it's over. And what would you do differently, et cetera. And so when I look back on everything, you know, God forbid this were to ever happen, you, know, you lead with that thought. God forbid this ever happened again. What would I do differently? And one of them was um, I had my, I've had my raft for about, you know, seven or eight years, and I really wasn't 100% sure. I knew the handle to it was underneath this Velcro flap. And then afterwards, I realized that it had a line. It turns out it's a breakaway line that you could have actually tethered it to the air to the aircraft. And uh, in the middle of all of this, one thing I also had in the back in my flight bag was a PLB locator, and I grabbed it when I grabbed my life jacket. But in fumbling and putting my last life jacket on, and Danny putting on his, and everything that was happening. I neglected to put the strap over my wrist. So when I actually jumped in the ocean to right the, the raft, the PLB was left in the aircraft. Mm. So that was something that I wouldn't have done. Yeah. The raft had a handle, so I, I, I had my hand on the handle, which is what I flipped uh, it out of the back seat. And so I was still holding on to it. I didn't have the line, and I was more intent on finding the handle to actually deploy the raft. And so once it inflated and it flipped upside down, I sort of followed the raft into the water to turn it right side up again. Got it. Okay. And uh, a little bit about the shoot pool. You're at 85 knots, 1,500 feet. Um, I'm not that familiar with, with the Cirrus uh, op recommendations. Is that about the the minimum altitude you want to pull the chute? Is that, did you optimize that? Uh, what what was your decision on the altitude to pull the chute there? Well, I know that the CAP system has been tested uh, as low as six and 700 feet. Uh, optimum, they are saying you want to deploy it at least 1,000 feet. Um, so I put an extra 500 when he got to 2000. Um, I decided at that point that I was going to pull the chute. I was going to, I wasn't going to wait till it got to a thousand and I wasn't going to definitely wasn't going to wait until it was below that. Cause I wanted to make sure that it had plenty of time to fully inflate and do its job. Yeah. And pulling that handle, it's a hard pull. Did time stop in your mind? You pull the handle and for a couple seconds, nothing happens. It seemed like, or was it all pretty much immediate? Actually, I can't, I can describe it as, well, for one, I was trained that you're going to grab the handle and you're going to pull down and forwards with it. And so I put my hand through the the handle and as I pulled down and forward, it, it you heard the bang when the rocket actually shot out the back and then the airplane pitching forward, um, I think the words that Danny and I used were OS, OS, OS. I won't finish the word. <laughs> it's like, I think we said that two or three times because, you know, just the noise of it and then the straps and everything was so quick. And then we, I mean, got jerked backwards. And so it was, uh, they have 
simulator in Atlanta and in some of the others that have full motion simulators, you can actually ride and actually do a simulated caps pull. I've never done it, and I've known it about it for years and thought about doing it sometime, but never did. Well, I had my actual caps pull, yeah. so I don't need to do it again. It sounds like a a pretty violent maneuver, though, as you know, as as would be expected. It's it's an emergency procedure there, right? But it, did you were you strapped in pretty tight? Is that something you made sure before you pulled the caps handle? Um, you know, was there any movement inside your cockpit of lurching forward or pressure on your stern or anything like that? We actually, you know, Danny got his life jacket on and got his seatbelt back on. I actually got my life jacket on and I was fumbling with my seatbelt when he said 2000. And I believe I latched, I, I clicked the seatbelt. I can't say 100%, but either way, I wasn't going to wait any longer. So when I deployed it, I deployed it. Um, the caps, when the parachute actually caught, the jerk from that was not as hard when you the airplane hit the water. Everybody, everybody says water's really concrete when you hit it. And sure enough, that was jarring, but the parachute stopping you was actually more. And I joke, this is after this experience, I lost two, I'm now two inches shorter than I was being <laughs> I took off. So uh, that happens, the, uh, that, that parachute opening was a bigger, bigger jolt than you hitting the water, which itself was a big jolt. You, you get, you're able to get the raft out, turn it right side up, your passenger gets out, you guys climb into the raft, and now maybe you just have a second to watch your airplane, take a picture of it going down, and just think, oh my gosh, what, what just happened? <laughs> it, it, you're sitting in the raft, and you're, you're going up and down with the swells. I, I dive, there's three of us, and we dive together, and so we have nicknames that we inherited the first dive we dove together and mine happens to be chumley because the first day we had a big breakfast and on the first time i ever dove with these guys i fed the fish and so <laughs> my nickname became chumley and so whenever i go diving i take dramamine uh when i take off to go flying i don't need dramamine well now i'm on this little raft going up and down in these waves and it had a cover to it and everything and Apparently, it's worse for you when you're inside the raft under the cover, but it didn't take long, and I was I was feeding the fish. Okay. So um, it wasn't a peaceful ride, let's say, where we were just sitting there contemplating. Um, you know, no sooner did the, my stomach calm down, a few minutes later, it acted up again. Yeah, so Jillian, uh, they're in the raft, and meanwhile, you guys are headed to the position, did you know? Did you get indication at that point they'd pulled the chute? I don't imagine you're close enough yet to actually see it. Yeah. So um, when we when we got closer to uh, being on scene, we um, obviously were at altitude for to start a search pattern. Um, the sea state was pretty bad. We did hear them pulling the chute over ATC, so we heard all that. We had their last position. Uh, that they gave out. So we were going off of that specifically. Uh, but once we got on scene, we you noticed the sea state was pretty rough. Uh, when the sea state's rough and when the winds are high, it's really hard for us to, to pick out things other than white caps. You know, you'll stare at a white cap thinking it's something and then it will disappear. Um, so that kind of makes it a little difficult to see things. Uh, we were also kind of anticipating a debris field or the parachute being there. And 
were anticipating it would have been, there was a little bit of a glide slope that they had taken. So between all those factors and then there being a big patch of seaweed around the last position, uh, it took us a while to actually find them. So we were in the area, but um, it took us quite a little bit to uh, actually see where they're at. How far away do you think you were when you heard that they had pulled the chute and that the aircraft was down? How far were you from them at that point? Um, I'm not sure how many nautical miles, but we were about 40 minutes out. I remember saying we'll be there in 40 minutes. Okay, okay. So, And now you're going to go to their last known position. Yep. Um, you're in a decent, you mentioned how hard it is to see things in such choppy conditions. What's the optimum altitude for you for something like that? Yeah, so we were at uh, 500 feet for a visual search. That's um, That's pretty good for us. And usually we get you know, when we're going on scene to a case, the district has already been notified and they get, have a search plan for us, but um, they were being notified in the process and uh, they didn't give us a search plan initially. So we had, we usually go straight to a Victor Sierra search plan. It's kind of like a sector search. And that's what we started with. We got through a couple legs and... Can you, can you talk us through that? What's a, what's a Victor search? So you, you know that you're on scene now, meaning... They are somewhere in your general vicinity. Right. You don't exactly know where. And what complicates it, I would imagine, is they could pretty much be in any direction, 360 degrees around your airplane somewhere, right? So how do you begin that? I know you guys have a very dedicated search pattern. Can you walk us through that? How do you you start it? What does that look like? Yeah, so our uh, pattern search starts in the direction of the drift and it's just a a search pattern that saturates a small area and you continue to search that area and kind of just adjust your initial heading over and over again until you're completely searched the area. So we started off on that and saw a lot of debris in a weed patch that was north of the last known position. Um, So we we kept getting caught up on these pieces of debris in this weed patch. Uh, it was a pretty large weed patch. And uh, like I said, there were lots of uh, white caps as well. So we still couldn't locate anything specifically. And you know what, when, when you're out there, especially after you've heard the whole thing go down, um, you start getting nervous and thinking to yourself, man, is that, hopefully that's not the last time we're ever going to hear these guys' voice because, you know, they were talking, saying last things over and over again of where they're going and their last in position and, uh, yeah, we got nervous. Like, we are going to be here till the end of this search pattern. At the end of the day, we had a plan to refuel if we needed to come back out. So we were very dedicated to finding them. So the anxiety is building in your airplane as you don't immediately find them. Right. When you start that search, you mentioned you fly a heading for a while, then you fly. Are you flying squares? Or are you flying sort of concentric circles? Are you flying laps uh, up and down? What What's the so pattern? We're flying like a, a triangle almost. So they are going north and then you come south, southeast, and then you go uh, southwest and then you come north. Does that kind of make sense? It's like a, it's like three triangles in a row. So we, we cover the area and then we just adjust our, the first heading of the, it's kind of hard to explain without showing a picture. Yeah. Yeah. So you're continuing and just adjusting your headings and flying mm-hmm. a little bit different triangles over and over again. Correct. Anxiety is building a little in your cockpit because you know there's downed airmen out there somewhere. Correct. And um, yep. it's, you, you see that there's high winds. You see that there's high seas. You know that's a difficult environment to survive in. 
So um, pick it up from there. Yep. And we had had, uh, ironically, we'd had three downed aircraft in the Miami area within the two months prior, and only one survivor out of the three aircraft barely made it out. So, mm. um, and they did have, they did have debris fields in some of those. So, um, you know, that's kind of what we had recently dealt with. And yeah, we were, we were definitely dedicated to finding them. Um, while I'm on this subject, uh, Ed, you mentioned that you left the PLB in the plane that PLBs and EPIRBs are um, a guaranteed we'll find you in a matter of seconds when we get on scene. So those are really great for our search and rescue capabilities because we have a little arrow on our plane that will automatically point to that position. And yeah, like I, you know, and like I said, in on. the future, God forbid, I will not <laughs> let that one out of my sight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? It reminds me of something that um, backcountry pilots have, have taught me through the years, and that is camping equipment is what's in your airplane. Survival equipment is what's ever on your body. Yeah. Um, and so it, it kind of reinforces that message, doesn't it, Ed, that uh, there's going to be so much going on in your cockpit and things you, you can't anticipate that the stuff that you really need has got to be somewhere on you and immediately available. Cargo pants. And I actually already ordered another raft because I have four or five more trips already scheduled this year. And a go bag, which has a place for the EPIR on it. It's neon colored and it floats and it's got room for necessary stuff that you keep. It's basically a emergency. You know, so if when you throw the raft, you're going to have that bag with you, which is going to have that GPS locator in it plus the stuff that I, I won't be without a passport on a foreign land again. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, really important to stress, Jill, and those personal locator uh, beacons, POBs, um, would have put you directly uh, to those guys within seconds. You could have flown directly to them. So yep. that's really important for all of us in flying in remote areas to remember. And and we have that on a, you know, we scan those frequencies on a constant basis whenever we're flying. So we could have heard it even if we hadn't heard the chatter over ATC as well. So um, we're constantly monitoring channel 16, but we're also monitoring those frequencies as well for the PLBs and EPIRBs. Yeah, fantastic. So uh, how did you actually find them? Who who found them and, and how? So the cruise ship. So they had something and we thought we found something at the same time. So I'm not really technically sure who found them first, but we definitely, uh, once we did see them, we went straight over to them and, and, and verified it was them. Um, but when we got on scene, the, uh, the cruise ship rogered up to us and said, Hey, we're, we can be there in about 30 minutes to that position. And we said, great. Once you get there, you can start an expanding square search, which is, um, starts from the middle and just kind of works its way out. And uh, they were great. They um, were the closest asset, uh, kind of backtracking, the closest Coast Guard assets were both four hours away just because that's kind of a remote spot. Um, so with the helicopter and the closest Coast Guard ship were both about four hours. So having that cruise ship being the closest asset was really, really helpful. Um, we vectored them in and... Uh, and yeah, so we saw the whole rescue from the air. <laughs> and now, how did you how did you get on frequency with the cruise ship? Is there uh, can you can you, how how were you in communication with them? So we have channel sixteen capabilities from our aircraft. Okay. And we were putting out the pon pon call on channel sixteen, maritime channel sixteen, 
and uh, that's for hailing and distress frequencies only. So uh, we had about over a dozen different assets contact us. Um, they were all pretty far away, but the cruise ship was the closest. I believe they had just departed, but I'm not, I'm not sure on that. But they were the closest to us out of any of the, uh, any of the vessels nearby, right. and they were the first ones to be able to get there. Um, so that really is what the pontoon was really probably the key to the whole thing, um, which our guys did a great job in the back of doing and, and uh, getting that started early. And so when you did, Vic, so you're, you're flying around, you're searching for them. When you did see them, uh, how did you see them? What did they look like? Was it a visual pickup from somebody out one of your windows? Uh, can you talk us through that once you saw How did you see them? And then once you saw them, what did you do? Yep. So, um, cruise ship thought they had something, I think it was to the west of them. And we think we saw, we thought we saw something on our radar as well. So we both kind of went to that area at the same time. And, um, it, it, it was, then they're in a raft. We were happy to see both of them looking good. <laughs> so that was very, you know, that gave us all a good feeling. And, and we were just really relieved out of anything that, uh, they were safe. We, we realized that we were searching north of the area that they were actually in. I don't know if the drift carried them south pretty far or if, uh, and, and while we were on scene as well, we dropped in SLDMB, which is a self-locating data marker buoy, and it gets all the drift and the winds and everything in that area and sends it back to our home plate to uh, generate a good search pattern for us. It helps generate, mm. you know, yeah. specifics of uh, what can help us find them. So, um, Yep, we were relieved, really excited. Uh, air traffic control kept checking in with us every every few minutes, asking if we had found them yet. They were very concerned as well. So once we found them, we, we told air traffic control, and they were very excited for us. We got a, it seemed like a little priority handling back on the way, you know, direct back to nice. Opelaka. So <laughs> it, was, uh, <laughs> it, was, it was a good it was a good feeling for sure. You know, that brings up a good point, Jillian. You guys were expecting to, to head home. You get diverted uh, for this search pattern. Was fuel an issue for you at all during this search? Um, so we're pretty lucky with this plane. Um, it, it sips fuel for a big cargo plane with all the capabilities it can do. And um, so we had a plan to, you know, if we'd been there for about, I want to say, 45 minutes longer, we would have probably had to refuel, but, you know, we had a plan to refuel in Provo if we needed and come back out and search. We, we were ready for a number of different possibilities. Yeah, great. So, Ed, can we go back to your perspective now? Um, you're doing your part to keep uh, the ecosystem alive and feeding the fish. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and did you, what did you first see? Was it the HC... Uh, 144 coming overhead? Was it the cruise ship? What was your first sign that people knew you were out there and knew where you were? We actually saw uh, Jillian's uh, fly over us a couple of times. And it's kind of interesting (laughs) because later we saw the picture from the ship. Now the ship is literally, I have a picture of me in the raft and the ship's in the background and it's huge. But the video that they took from that ship that looked so huge to us, of us, we looked like we were a pin <laughs> in the middle of the ocean. And when the swell went up and the swell went down, their video lost us from sight. So I can understand where she didn't probably didn't see us, you know, at, initially even. But we did see. And so we saw her flying a search pattern. 
And at one point I was like, well, for sure they saw us. And our flares that were in the raft were duds. They, they mm. did not fire. And there was the other kind that lights up and stays lit. And I said, Danny, don't you do that? You'll light us on fire, and I don't want to sink. <laughs> so, um, so we saw we saw the Coast Guard, but it was continuously still doing a pattern. Then she'd go out of sight, and then she'd come back over and inside again. And it was probably about thirty minutes or so after from when we first initially saw. Jillian's plane that we actually I was on my eighth or ninth time feeding the fish although I had nothing left to feed them and Danny makes the comment he says I think I see a ship in the distance and I think my response was just kill me and feed me to the fish I don't feel good (laughs) (laughs) and so (laughs) I was not a happy camper Uh, at that point a little while later, he says, it's a cruise ship. It's a cruise ship. They're coming towards us, and they're getting bigger and bigger. And he looks at me, and he says, how ironic would that be? We survive a crash at sea in an airplane only to get run over by the cruise ship that didn't see us. <laughs> <laughs> so, is your raft orange? Is yep. your raft orange, yep. high-glow orange? Yeah. yeah. And so I'm thinking, Jillian, even at your uh, altitude, you know, that high glow orange and those swelling seas really difficult to see even with that contrast? I think we had our eyes just a little bit north. Um, you know, our next sweep, I think, would have gone right back by them. Uh, but yeah, we have observers on the left and right side. We have a flare camera and then that's up in front. So we've got a lot of eyes out of the aircraft. Um, but it just, that's just kind of how it is. It's, it's you know, you think 500 feet isn't that far up, but if you've ever seen, if, I don't know if you've ever looked at a video of uh, what it looks like from a Coast Guard plane at a certain altitude trying to find someone in the water or even like a raft in the water, but it, it is definitely very difficult. And that's why we do conduct so many sweeps of the area just to uh, really saturate it and make sure we can yeah. see things, get eyes on it several times and not just a six spot. So. Great. Well, so, uh, Ed, the cruise ship comes alongside. Jillian, you guys are still on scene. You saw that the cruise ship had made contact with them. Is that, or were you monitoring that? So at some point you knew that they were rescued? Oh, yep. We stayed on scene the whole time and uh, made sure they safely got on board and watched the small boat come out to them and watched the small boat go back in. So uh, we made sure that they were all good to go before departing scene. Okay, and once you saw that, then you climbed back up and continued en route uh, home to Miami. Yep. And that had to be a really good feeling for you and your crew. It was. It was definitely a very good feeling. And, you know, we were just, I was really proud of them. It's a really young crew. I mean, um, a lot of these guys, it was six, it's a six person crew, two uh, air crewmen, and then two mission system operators. And each one of them had a, had a part in it. And, um, yeah, they're all in their early 20s. My co-pilot was 27, so it was a pretty young crew. Uh, <laughs> they did an awesome job. I, I was really, really proud of them. Fantastic. So, Ed, can you walk us back through that? So the cruise ship comes, it stops, and then did you see a smaller boat kind of speeding out to you at, at some point? No, actually, it was funny because the, the cruise ship was sitting back, and it was a good distance away, and they were at a full stop just floating there. And... Danny's like, I wonder what's going on. 
And I looked at him and I says, if they throw one of those life rings out and say swim for us, not happening. <laughs> so, but, so I guess they had the, the, the boat that they lowered came off the backside, the side that we couldn't see. And the video that they actually gave us to take home with us actually shows when they've got the boat back up. And it's a process in itself. But so they sat there for a while, and then eventually we actually saw the boat come from around the backside of the ship and came out to us. And they they reached with a, a hook and hooked the raft and pulled us up alongside and then helped us into their ship. And they left the raft and they took us back in the side of the ship. I guess a big compartment opens because this thing's like 10 stories high. And so we literally walked off and onto the ship at, at water level, pretty much. Um, they they helped me, and I guess we'd been there for a while, a little dehydrated, or your knees are such, knocking a little bit from the excitement of all. As we're getting close, before we got on the ship, as we were getting close, there was probably, you know, three to 500 people, and they were all started to cheer. Oh wow, that that's really three to five hundred people that on the cruise ship that were just observing the whole scene. Yeah, and yeah, it's funny because as we're pulling pulling alongside, it's like they're all screaming and you know applauding, and Danny is waving, um, and I'm sitting in the front still sick as a dog, <laughs> and all the pictures <laughs> shows that with him waving. <laughs> so you guys uh, get on board the ship, and from there uh, they take you in and. You know, I got to say, you know, on the one hand, some bad luck with your engine quitting on you. On the other hand, to be rescued by a cruise ship, I mean, that's not too bad as things go. It's it's not a bad way to go. In fact, I had (laughs) one of my friends called me up and she said, you know, I'm so mad at you. I'm like, what? She says, anybody else, you know, crashes the plane in the ocean, they get picked up by some smelly fish charter, fish fishing boat or something like that. And you... No, you get picked up by the, the, the huge cruise ship. Uh, you get to get wined and dined, pictures with the crew and everything, and a, a ride to St. Thomas. So. <laughs> well, as we look back on uh, some lessons learned, um, why don't we start uh, with you, Ed, if we could, as you think through. Well, first of all, let me ask you, I guess we'll never find out what the problem was with your engine because that's somewhere underneath the, uh, on the Caribbean floor, uh, never to be retained probably. Yeah. Um, any, any ideas, uh, have you talked to Cirrus or the engine manufacturer, any ideas of what, what might've caused your engine failure? No. And it's not like it's a ongoing, you know, it's not like something that's happened repeatedly, um, that, we talked to, I talked to the folks at Continental and I talked to people at Cirrus and, and there's really nothing out there that shows that this is like some ongoing problem that, you know, need to be aware of. So, you know, loss of oil pressure, we didn't see any oil spray up on the, you know, on the windshield or anything. So, you know, fuel pump issue or fuel line underneath the airplane, I, you, you just no way to know. Hmm. Yeah. We can only guess. NTSB, um, when I spoke to them, they basically said they were classifying it as, you know, a critical engine failure causes unknown. Wow. So uh, lessons learned for you from this whole scenario. What did you do well that you were happy with? What would you do differently of, God forbid, uh, something like this ever happens again? Oh, a friend of mine many, many years ago 
you know, always said, you know, fly the plane, fly the plane, fly the plane. And so um, I, we constantly, obviously, having two pilots in the plane helped. So, you know, eye on the ball. Everything we did was almost mechanical and instinctive. I mean, I went through, you know, total, I even tried to restart engine. I turned off fuel uh, without actually physically pulling out the the checklist while at the same time putting on life jackets and so on. Um, Lessons learned. I will be much better prepared when I fly over water as far as, you know, equipment and knowing um, having a go bag uh, and that, and that PLB Eperd uh, will be with me for sure. Um, I can't say enough about Cirrus and the parachute because you know listening to Jillian talk about you know the other rescues and the debris fields. Um, the reason you didn't see the parachute sticking up there because it got pulled under by the airplanes and there was there was no debris to be had other than my door, which I'm sure sank relatively quickly, but. Um, I can only imagine having to try to land an airplane. People ask me, what would you have done if you didn't have a parachute? And, you know, you have to try to bring the airplane in for a landing as close to stall speed as you can, try to put your tail down first, and try to avoid not flipping over which or cartwheeling and leaving a debris field. Mm-hmm. I'm thankful for having a parachute. Uh, lesson learned, definitely be prepared uh, cargo pants and equipment. That's what I want to remember. <laughs> and it sounds like we mentioned earlier having that uh, personal locator beacon of some type on you, and Jillian stressed mm-hmm. how important that was. Uh, and then it sounds like also your raft, you had had that for seven or eight years. Um, it worked, uh, you know, thankfully. But some of the, uh, s- some of the uh, assortment ma- of material you keep with it, like flares and stuff, didn't work. So maybe that's something all of us who fly over water should keep in mind, too, to keep those current and refresh them every now and then. Yeah, that's going to be in that go bag. Even if the raft, most all of these rafts, they actually have flares and light uh, mirror kit and other stuff on board. Um, but I'm going to have in that go bag, it's it's going to have fresh flares, you know, just like uh, my boat. You know, I replace them every two years anyway. Yeah. So I'll make sure that I have flares and uh, that PLB will will be on my person. I will be flying in cargo pants. I fly the Caribbean a lot. And so that PLB, anytime I'm over water, will be in, in my actual cargo pants pocket. <laughs> and I just commend you on flying the airplane, as Bob Hoover says, all the way through the crash. And you flew it all the way down, very intentional on helping your, uh, having your co-pilot call out altitude so you're sure that didn't fall out of your cross-check, which has happened before with ejection seats and other airplanes where they get so busy doing other things. Believe it or not, it falls out of their cross-check and they either don't eject or pull the parachute in time. You make sure that you're going to do that by having your co-pilot there count it down. Very deliberate action to do that. And I really, uh, really commend you on keeping a cool head through a very difficult uh, situation there. Thanks. And Jillian, meanwhile, on on your end, talk us through some of the lessons learned that you observed and what uh, observations you would have for us. Uh, yeah, so um, probably, I know I mentioned uh, when we were talking with the controller and heard it on the radios and, and just um, maybe asking them exactly what uh, we were looking for if they did have a life raft 
um, if they had a PLB and, and just kind of some of those details so we could have better prepped for what we were looking for when we came on scene. Um, I was kind of on the fence at the time just because I didn't want to get in the way of any of their uh, emergency, you know, ditching preps. So probably doing that just um, most of the time we don't have that information and the fact that it, it was there, I probably would have taken advantage of that. Um, and then just not expecting a debris field when we got there. So those two things, um, you know, the training we, we do in the Coast Guard is meant for stuff like this. So uh, we eventually found them, but it did take us a little bit longer than we would have liked. But that's just kind of how, how the cookie crumbles sometimes. Yeah. Well, um, thank you both so much for sharing your story with us. Ed, I would imagine that uh, every March 5th, you might uh, turn towards Miami and raise a toast to the, uh, to the United States Coast Guard. I am definitely, you know, Jillian... Um, and lost words. Thank you. Of course, yeah. This is you know this is what um, this is what we join the service and go into aviation to do stuff like this, help out, and it's it's pretty amazing to use a you know big hunk of metal and just the skill set you have to to do good stuff and and to uh, to be there for this these kinds of things. Well, an interesting and compelling story that we can all learn from. Lieutenant Jillian Harner, uh, aircraft commander of the HC-144 that was so critical in the rescue of Ed Regensburg and his Cirrus downed near the Turks and Caicos uh, earlier this spring. Thank you both, Ed, for your your cool hand under a a difficult time, and then Jillian for your commitment to service and uh, what you and all your Coast Guard comrades do for for us. Uh, We're so proud of what you do and so thankful. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you for having us. Wow, a great ending to that story. Makes you so proud of the United States Coast Guard and the work that they do. Ever vigilant seems to uh, seems to be the right phrase there. And I'm sure Ed's thankful not only for the Coast Guard, but also for Cirrus and BRS and how they've teamed together to develop that CAP system for the Cirrus that's so effective and has already saved so many lives, including probably Ed's. To see photos and video from Ed and Jillian's story, you can go to airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was and click on the link in the episode description. Hey listeners, if you like this podcast and you'd like to support us and other things we do to support aviation safety, please consider going to aopafoundation.org slash donate. That's aopafoundation.org slash donate. And consider a donation to help us continue this and our other important work in aviation safety. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, fly safe. There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was.